Hi, I'm Dr. Karen Becker. And thank you for joining me during Cat Week. Uh, we have a very special first guest for Cat Week. Veterinarians that are listening or watching right now, you already know Dr. Joseph Barges. Um, he is world-renowned uh, expert, not only in internal medicine, specifically uh, kidney and urinary issues for both dogs and cats, but he's also board certified in nutrition. So you have a lot going on, Dr. Barges, for, <laughs> for pet parents that don't know who you are. Just talk a little bit about... Um, your incredibly interesting job and all you do at the veterinary school and beyond, actually. Okay. Uh, well, I am originally from West Virginia, and I am actually a graduate of Marshall University. I did my veterinary training here at the University of Georgia, and then I did my residencies and PhD and postdoc at the University of Minnesota. And I've been on faculty at Georgia and at Tennessee, and now I'm back at Georgia. I was in private practice for a couple of years as well with a position at Cornell University. Uh, so what my position here is, is professor of medicine and nutrition, and I teach um, several courses as well as seeing patients uh, on the clinic floor and uh, doing research. So I, the, the, the three arms of an academic position is teaching research and service. So I'm involved with teaching both students and house officers, general public veterinarians, uh, research in different areas, and then service in terms of seeing patients and uh, committee work and serving on editorial boards and things like that. A lot. And then I also know you do a lot of writing. I know you write textbooks, you write journal articles, you do a lot yeah, of writing. I probably do more than I should, but uh, I, I try and do that. So I do um, have some publications, both scientific, obviously, and then um, review articles, edit a, a textbook where getting ready to revise that textbook. So that'll be part of my 2018. Yeah, you, you have a very full plate. So we do appreciate you taking some time out to, to chat with us about all things cat health, but particularly um, two things I wanna touch on because they tend to be two recurrent issues for me as a general practitioner um, is the food issue and then the, the urinary issue, which oftentimes can go hand in hand. So let's first start with the food issue. Okay. Um, my viewpoint, uh, and I think that that's reflective of the Association of Feline Practitioners, is that cats probably do better with a moisture-rich diet. So I'm a big advocate of if you can afford to feed canned food, it would be in a kitty's best interest, or fresh food that, of course, is nutritionally balanced. It would be better for, for cats. Are you, um, if you were to get a kitten in your home, Dr. Barges, would you, what would you feed that kitty? So we actually have two kittens in our home that are getting close to a year, uh, a year of age. They were feral cats that in our neighborhood, we have been catching feral cats and getting them fixed. And one of them was a queen who had three kittens and we were able to catch the kittens, find a home for one, decide to keep the other two. So our kittens eat a, a, a lot of different things. They twice a day get some canned food, uh, a different varieties and then they get to nibble on dry food, and that's on a, 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 a timed feeding system. And then they get lots of treats. And then we make a homemade uh, uh, mix of actually kale and chicken that they get once a day. And then they get canned sardines or mackerel or tuna or something else at night. Right. Um, and then they get a raw egg with whip with whole cream once a day as well. So awesome. they're, they're not, they're not lacking. I, I could also see why they made the wise decision to hang out at your house. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. The neighbors. That was an no, excellent choice. No kidding. <laughs> and so, so actually you touch on a lot of great points. You're doing some process, some fresh, you know, some living foods um, and such a tremendous variety. Are, are you, how much of a believer are you in providing nutritional diversity, uh, diversity, especially while cats are growing? 
I think it's really important. Um, and now there's not a lot of scientific data to back that up, but I think it is important for them to get a variety. I think it does a couple of things. Uh, you want a variety in textures and you want a variety in flavors. Cats are very good for the most part at getting locked into a food. And then if you need to change the food, it becomes a real headache um, or impossible. And so by giving them a variety of things, it, again, it accomplishes two things. One is it gives them familiarity with lots of different textures. And for us and for our cats, it's a, a, a mix of textures of commercially available canned and dry foods, as well as treats, plus homemade treats and, and foods. And then the other uh, advantage of a variety of things is if, for example, and it shows up every once in a while, there's a food or a group of foods or a certain type of ingredient uh, uh, on being on recall because there may or may not be, but there's you know some issues with it. By feeding them different things, it dilutes that potential um, adverse effect out. Um, yep. And so it just keeps them, keeps them engaged. And these cats are uh, very interesting because they they're, they're very lean, but they're very food motivated. Um, and so they know when that timer on the food thing clicks, which we set it for eight and 16 hours that, and we're there at night when that 16 hour one clicks, man, they are all over, over it because they get to nibble on the dry food. Uh, and so they're, they're good at, um, being willing to try different things. Which is great. And I'm sure that you have found, as I have found, that the sooner you institute a nutritional diversity, the easier it is to get young kittens Absolutely. eating a variety than older kittens. Yeah, we probably cut these cats when they were, I'm not sure how old, probably eight. Well, they were probably being close to wean, so probably eight to 12 weeks of age. And we started the diversity of their eating fairly early. And uh, we've been able to expand on that. And so yeah. we make a week's worth of chicken and kale and put it in the freezer and take them out and give them a little bit of it um, twice, you know, once a day. So great. And is there anything that, uh, because you started kind of opening up their palates early on, anything that the kitties don't want to eat or they'll, they'll eat whatever you put down? Basically. I, I think if they had their choice and sometimes they eat things they shouldn't um, yeah. like plants um, that they don't really care. Um, yeah, they're, exactly. they're interested. If you put something down, they're interested in trying it. So if we get a new treat, they don't, take their time to get used to it. They're, they're usually right on top of it. And uh, it's interesting. We have these treats for them that it looks like twigs. I don't know oh. what they're called, but they really do look like, um, like pretzel sticks, but they're like a woody consistency and they love those things. Huh. I, I can't believe a cat would eat a tree, but it does. They yeah. do. Well, and, and you bring up some other great points when it comes to introducing them, like you said, to different textures that I think that not only can that help reduce the likelihood that kitties get locked on to one particular flavor mm -hmm. or brand, but what are your thoughts on rotating all those different foods for that nutritional, for, for the nutrient intake diversity, or I guess, conversely, a better question would be, uh, you know, some, a lot of people are raised thinking, never switch your cat's food. In fact, some old timer veterinarians mm -hmm. will say that as well. What are your thoughts on that old adage, never change your cat's food? Uh, we, we rotate their foods. So we have them because they were kittens. We uh, actually did not feed growth diets. What we fed them were three different of the kind of diabetic diets, the high protein, low carb diets, and three different types of critical care diets that are again, high protein, high fat, low carb diets um, in both the dry and canned food. And so I, we, you know, open a can, they get a quarter of a can twi um, twice a day. So one can lasts two days because we have two cats and then we open a different variety. So every two days they get a different, uh, a different flavor, a different texture, a different 
company, a different everything. Yep. And do you have any thoughts on um, when it comes to different companies, different brands, different foods, do you have any, you have any thoughts on um, if people wanted to try and get their cats on Mm -hmm. to introduce some variety, do you have any trip uh, tips or tricks on tricking adult cats that are kind of locked on? What, What are some top ideas you have for converting cats to a healthier diet? Yeah, they get a little bit trickier because cats are cats. Um, Mixing the old and the new food together, if possible, so that they can't pick it out. Because if you don't mix them well, cats are really good about picking out the old food, not touching the new. So there are ways of mixing them together. Sometimes, and cats are kind of resistant to adding water to it, but sometimes you can get away with it. Um, So that makes it sort of more mushy and easy to to mix together. Um, Adding flavoring broths to it. So if they're used to a chicken food, using chicken broth to give the chicken flavor to the new food as a way of kind of tricking them to get over. Um, one of the things we do a lot with is we have a lot of interactive toys. So they get their treats, not just by coming and sitting on our lap. We have things where they have to dig it out of a, out of a container or they have to spin something or they have to climb something or, you know, whatever. And so it becomes a game with them. So when we change treats, which they're not really locked into, but one of the things you can do is use that as a treat and get them used to the new food by getting them to hunt for it, because that's what cats want to do and keeping them active um, and, and tapping into their hunting instinct can get them motivated to try something new because it's, it's a new experience for them. And how much do you believe, Dr. Barges, do you, do, you're also touching a little bit of environmental enrichment and the mm-hmm. fact that most cats are super bored, in my opinion. They're super yeah. bored. They spend the whole day kind of locked in our homes. Yeah. Napping is a big part of their day. But, you know, they are, they're wired to be physically active, which most of the time we don't necessarily encourage. What, what's your thoughts in terms of how much of the stress-related issues, including uh, chronic cystitis uh, in kitties, could be stress-related to their environment more so than food? Yeah, that's a little, and again, that's a little bit tough to prove or disprove. Um, I think environmental enrichment, I mean, we, we are appreciating more and more of that, not only environment enrichment, but, um, and decreasing, uh, but decreasing stress in general. I mean, the cat-friendly protocols for clinics, the, even in research, um, the mandate of environmental enrichment, I mean, we, we under, we didn't appreciate in the past, we certainly do now. Um, I think it helps them. And again, our cats eat pretty good, but they're pretty lean um, still because they do get a lot. Now, I don't know what they do during the day. I know most of the time they're sleeping, usually yeah. under the bed or under the couch. That's where they seem to like it, although they, they perch up high. But when they're active, they're active because they're kittens. And, and we keep them active by, again, getting them to do um, find food, go hunting for it, figure out puzzles uh, and the male, our male Ray is really good at this, um, figuring how to get food out of something. Um, they have vertical space as well as horizontal. Uh, so we not only have a couple of climbing stuff, but we have, um, uh, bookcases and stuff set up so that they can climb up and jump up, uh, and get used to doing the vertical space as well. Usually at night, um, when they want to be really active after they've eaten, we have toys that do a lot of motion. So, uh, so we'll turn them on. They're noisy, but you turn them on and they chase something that's underneath a little, um, skirt that they have to chase. Uh, and then we have another toy that's a laser light that does random movement and they love the laser lights. And then we have handheld lasers and, and they will wear themselves out chasing that little red dot of light. Um, so early on young with them, we've got them trained to do that. And we, and every night we do that with them. 
um, yeah. so that they stay active. So you're intentionally creating basically an indoor exercise protocol. You're doing, uh, of course, a fantastic job at nutritional diversity. What are some, how much does moisture play into feline urinary health, Dr. Barges? And, and what are, uh, what are your suggestions on how to increase moisture in a kitty's diet? Yeah, there's a, there, that's also a good question because there's data on both sides that they need more moisture. And then there are other data from uh, control studies that, you know, uh, looking at cats with lower urinary tract disease, whether stones or idiopathic cystitis, similar to interstitial cystitis in women where moisture didn't play a role. Um, you know, I, I think if you look at, and there are a couple studies out there that have looked at what do feral cats eat, realizing that our domestic cats are not in the wild, but they tend to eat small prey and they tend to be mostly moisture, a lot of protein, very little carbohydrate and a lot of, of bones and stuff in it. Um, and so that's where those diets come into play. Does that mean a cat can't do okay on those other types of foods? Absolutely not. Um, you know, we've got decades of, of experience and data that adult cats have a wide safety margin. And a lot of the over-the-counter foods are designed for an average cat or average dog. Um, and so they're adequate. The real question is, can we do better than adequate? And is your pet an average pet? Mm -hmm. uh, our cats are not average. Um, and so we don't treat them as average. So that's why we give them therapeutic diets. Um, we give them all the different treats, all the different textures and stuff. So, th th I mean, again, they can do very well. And I've had cats that have lived to be 20 on, you know, dry commercial over-the-counter food. Um, but the role of moisture, it, it helps because cats don't tend to drink a lot. Our cats don't drink hardly at all because of the amount of moisture they get in the canned food, in the homemade diet. Um, they get, again, the cream and the egg together, all of that. Um, so, uh, you know, we put up, fill up a water bowl. I usually end up filling it every couple of days and it usually not much missing from it. Um, but even so, cats on even dry food don't tend to drink a lot. And so yeah. when they're healthy, it's no big deal. But as they get older and their kidney function starts declining or they're prone to diseases of the bladder, stones, crystals or whatever, then that really concentrated urine that they can achieve can be part of the problem. And so diluting them out helps. And if they're not used to being diluted um, uh, uh, with moisture in the food and everything, then getting them onto those kinds of diets is hard to do. So getting them on that early really helps. And for cats, um, that maybe are prone, a lot of our listeners, viewers, subscribers adopt kitties, which is awesome, but they, these mm -hmm. kitties come with already inflamed, irritated bladders. Is there anything right. new? Um, you're, you are, you're, you're the guy that everyone goes to anything new forefront of research ideas, thought tips on how kitties get into this, uh, chronic inflammatory condition and their bladders and yeah, tips on getting out. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's a good question, too. There's some theories, not any really proven to any great extent. Um, there's uh, probably two big ones. One is a viral theory. And there are some cats that probably do have viruses that only attack the bladder. And, you know, we have some ways maybe of figuring that out. And then the question is, do we have ways of treating that? And right now we don't. And then the other is what's called a neurogenic inflammation. So it's related to that whole stress idea. and And it's related to um, a, a theory that something happens even in when they're in utero, in the uterus, that with the mother that causes some stress so that as they get older, they don't mount, the adult cats don't mount an appropriate stress response. And 
what happens is when you mount a stress response is you have the stress, but that stress also feeds back to turn it off, to dampen it. So it's always a balance. Um, and we talk, you know, about homeostasis, but it's really chaos. And so it's it's how which how are we swinging in this chaotic environment? And what happens, what's thought to happen, um, and there's some data to su support this, is the cats who have these problems, they mount the stress response, but they don't dampen it over time. And so that stress then targets something. And it could be the bladder. So they have bladder pain issues. It could be uh, the intestines, and so they have inflammatory bowel disease. Could be their skin, and so they pull their fur. I mean, it could. It's, it's hard to predict what they'll yeah. what they'll target. Um, and so, some of the things that are coming out, um, and some ideas are minimizing the stresses you talked about, both with environmental enrichment, and then there are some pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic ways of helping. Um, there's a study with diet that showed that uh, feeding a diet that was high in omega-3 fatty acids and antioxidants. Um, and uh, sort of an anti-anxiety uh, ingredient, which is a um, um, part of a milk protein, um, yeah. help decrease the recurrences of their bladder issues. Um, we sometimes use, you know, different herbal preparations or extracts that provide some um, uh, calming effect um, to help with it. If if clients are not sure they want to go on drugs per se. Um, so it just depends on the patient mm -hmm. and it depends what the owner wants to do. And then again, minimizing that stress. Do you feel like Dr. Barges in the last, let's just say 10 years that we're making some headway and getting these patients feeling better? I think back to when I went to vet school 25 years ago and I feel like we didn't have great options. We, we didn't. Shooting in the dark with not a yeah. whole lot of success. Yeah, and that's true. And I went to school longer than you ago. So um, that's true. We didn't have a lot. We didn't understand necessarily the role of diet other than diet's role with crystals. But with the idiopathic disease, a lot of people recommended a lot of things with no data whatsoever. And um, most cats get better in four to seven days, regardless of what you do. It's the ones that have recurrent disease or it doesn't go away that um, we, we kind of didn't have a lot of options. And I would say, you know, you're right, probably starting in the mid, maybe it's been more than the, than 10 years ago, probably in the 15-ish range. Um, some of the work that Tony Buffington did at Ohio State, um, Jody Westrop, who's now at um, California Davis, John Kruger is at Michigan State, um, some of the, and others that have looked at the viruses and the role of stress have come up with ways to help Mm -hmm. combat that. I, I think probably one of the first things, though, is if you get a kitten young, even if it's a stray or, or adopted, is to get them trained early. Mm -hmm. um, when you get them as adults, it gets a lot harder, and it's harder to trick adults when they're used to a certain lifestyle. Um, and, and that's where the real um, difficulty comes in. Yep. And so uh, any other tips for people that could be dealing with recurrent cystitis, um, right. other than partnering with their veterinarian, exploring dietary, how often would you say a change in diet could improve chronic cystitis, regularly or not so much? Um, I That's a good question. I think change in diet um, probably helps more often than not. Mm -hmm. um, as long as you're not inducing a stress by trying to change the diet. So if a cat's not going to eat a food, deciding, well, I'm just going to put it down and make them eat it or else they're going to starve, a lot of cats will starve. Um, and that just adds out another layer of stress. So it's a matter, I think, more – I think the, the trick is getting involved with your cat. Um, 
you know, rather than just having one that sits in the window and comes out when you want to feed it and, but you don't interact with it at all. I think interacting with them really changes their stress level. Um, and although cats are solitary, they want attention. And so I remember somebody saying, if you don't see, if an owner doesn't see a cat, there's a problem it, it, other than when it comes out to eat. And, and I think that's true. Um, I think you want them to get comfortable with, with you and where you're living. And if you move, then getting them, you have to get them back to being comfortable. Um, so I think diet helps a lot. Um, there are components of diet that help. And then just even sometimes just a change in diet helps because you find something that the cat really likes. And again, it, helps with them getting used to where they live. Yeah. Okay. Great. That, that's a good suggestion. Back to your omega-3s and managing mm -hmm. inflammation. You offer your kitties whole food sources of omega-3s, which is great. <laughs> what are your thoughts on how much omega-3s, because you get this beautiful dual specialty, how much omega-3s after, if kitties are eating commercially available processed foods, canned or dry, of course, those omega-3s are in there. How, how many are left after high heat processing? So that, uh, that's a good question. Um, and I think the answer to it is depends on where the source of the omega-3s come from. So a lot of the foods have omega-3 fatty acids in them, but they're not coming from fish or marine life. Um, and cats, cats lack an ability to take the omega-3s that we have in, say, flaxseed oil and turn it into the omega-3s that you need to put into the cell membrane that changes the inflammation. So if you're really gonna give omega-3 fatty acids to cats, you really have to give EPA, EPA and DHA, the, the, the two long chain um, fatty acids. Even dogs aren't that good at it. They only convert about 8% of what's in their diet. So you really wanna give omega-3s, you really wanna give marine life. Um, and so not only the heat processing part of it, but if they're using a lot of plant sources, they're not getting a lot of, they're getting omega-3s, but they're not getting the type that cats can use. Um, and so it's important. And, and even when you look at the high omega-3 diets, they're really not a pharmacologic dose in them. So if you really need to get that anti-inflammatory dose, uh, then you, uh, even if they're on a high omega-3 diet, we oftentimes have to supplement more, whether it's in the form of a capsule or a pump or naturally and you know, the oils and stuff like that, um, we end up giving more. And then just two, two questions I'll pose to you that are the top two questions I get regularly about mm -hmm. fish. Number one, are you concerned about iodine long-term? Because kitty, you know, iodine yeah. is great for dogs, but not necessarily cats. And then number mm -hmm. two, heavy metals, PCBs, dioxins, or contaminants. Yeah, so, you know, we end up, although I will say, uh, we, I will say Donna, my significant other, will go and buy, like the cats eat better than I do. Um, so she gets, you know, free ranging, organic, non-GMO, antibiotic free, whatever, whatever, you know, salmon. And I end up getting whatever's yeah. left over. But, um, you know, when we go and we get, uh, we feed a lot of the canned fish products because a lot of them carry labels that say these don't contain heavy metals or, you know, there's data at least that they've, check the sardines for heavy metals. And, and so you feel better about that. Yep. Um, the wild caught ones, again, are a little bit tougher unless somebody's analyzed them and said, yeah, these are heavy metal free or um, don't have a lot of iodine or, or in them. You know, even though they contain a lot of, you know, say iodine, it, it kind of depends on what form the iodine's in. So in those whole ingredients, 
you know, bananas have a lot of potassium in them, but you don't get a lot of potassium out of bananas because it's bound. Um, bones have a lot of calcium in them, but if you feed a raw bone, the dogs and cats actually don't get a lot of calcium from it because it's bound. And so a lot of those other things, even though if they're high, they may not be utilizing what's in it because it's not available to them. Well, and you bring up a really great point. I just, this is just my own personal theory, but I, I have wondered how much of the hyperthyroidism we, we're seeing in kitties is related to the fact that we're using synthetic iodine mm. as an additive in commercial foods, whereas whole food iodine, which is what would be found in seafood, I think would, could be metabolized differently in the cat's bodies. Yeah, maybe metabolized uh, even uh, as maybe not quite as much as, well, maybe, absorbed. but probably uh, absorbed and, absorbed. and utilized. Yeah. Um, yeah. absolutely. And so any thoughts behind, I know, of course we have therapeutic, a therapeutic diet mm -hmm. out there for hyperthyroidism cats, right. any thoughts about reducing, or would you, when you're formulating custom diets for cats with hyperthyroidism, you intentionally leave the iodine out. Any ideas on shifting minimum iodine requirements for cats to be less than what it currently is or no thoughts? Well, I wish, I wish I could say yes or no. I think that depends on the, the organizations that make those you know, decisions. Um, I think that's probably true. Now iodine, you can't be zero iodine because right. iodine deficiency causes its own problems too. So it's a matter of achieving a level. And when I do home, when we do homemade diets and we want to say restrict something, we have what AFCO, the, the fee control officials, their nutrient profiles. And I usually look at that and then I decide how much do I want to restrict it. So when when I get asked by pet owners, well, does this, if they ask this, if, does it meet AFCO? The answer is sometimes not um, yeah. because I, the AFCO requirements are for adult healthy cats or growing kittens or pregnant dogs or whatever. And I'm formulating something that isn't a healthy adult cat. And so but I'm keeping it above what I know are minimum levels, at least for what we know right now. Yep. Um, and so that's where that comes into play. Uh, but but you you would surmise that formulating for, let's say, optimal low, you know, meeting mm -hmm. AFCO minimum iodine is a whole different story than high, very high iodine. Oh, no, absolutely. And, and it's not even so much minimal AFCO. It's really the National Research Council is the one that kind of publishes minimums um, based on purified diet studies, whereas AFCO really publishes, again, what's adequate for one of four life stages for an average otherwise healthy animal um, that provides, again, adequate nutrition, not necessarily optimal nutrition and not necessarily for a not average dog or cat. Um, and, and that's, again, where we walk that line when we're looking at diets. Uh, so one more question about AFCO, about all life stages. You mentioned mm -hmm. that you were feeding your kitties, not all life stages. you have right. any thoughts about um, where I think the industry could be going, where we are starting to think about, you know, adult diets versus growth and not doing this all life stages? Do you think that dividing these categories up and specifically formulating could provide more targeted nutrition for those age groups or no, all life stages are good? Um, so AFCO recognizes four life stages, adult maintenance, uh, pregnancy, lactation, and growth. And really, you can group them into two because um, pregnancy, lactation, and growth, are, are they look very similar. So it's really adult maintenance and reproduction. Um, the advantage of an all-life stage diet is you can feed it to a kitten and, or a puppy. And then as they become adults, you can just continue to feed the same food. So again, if, uh, if a pet owner is looking for, I need something easy, I don't want to spend a lot of money, I don't want to make a lot of changes, this is my lifestyle, this is what I want, then those are fine as long as they are complete and balanced for all life stages. 
again, it comes down to deciding as a owner, as a pet parent, is my child average or not? Um, and I don't know that there's going to be a move to change that. Um, I, I don't know that there'll be more life stages added. I would yeah. like to think maybe there will be, but I don't know that from a, a, a policy or, you know, yeah. um, legislative, as it were, not the right word, um, that we're going to come up with a senior diet. Yeah, exactly. And I was just um, going to geriatrics is, of course, what everyone would like. And I totally right. agree with you. I don't think um, AFCO or NRC is going to put the research into developing that. Oh, but, I don't think they will. I'm not sure anybody I, will. But even when they do, I don't know that they'll adopt it. Yeah. Um, and the, the problem is an adult maintenance nutrient profile is the same for a one-year-old Chihuahua as it is for a 15-year-old Great Dane yep. um, or a two-year-old domestic short hair cat and an 18-year-old British short, you know, blue. Um, and, and they're probably different. We know there are differences across age and certainly probably differences between a Chihuahua and a Newfoundland. Um, but I think it's too hard to come up. I think the issue is going to be, it's too hard to come up with a set of nutrient profiles that are that specific. Um, and and be and and make that the standard. I, I, right. I think that's what the regulatory side has problems with, and I think it's what pet food companies are going to have problems with. And but in a perfect world, if you decide that your cat is not going to be average, and you're right. willing to take into consider into consideration what would be optimal for the kitten, sure, you would probably suggest grow a growth diet and then a adult so, diet. So so so. Yeah. So I would tell you, though, the way we approach this sort of like the food pyramid. So if I had a food pyramid, wherever my hand is, if I had a food pyramid and I put it at the top, I would put a homemade diet because homemade diets, I have complete control over the ingredients. I can make it simple, uh, limited ingredients. They're fresh ingredients. They're whole ingredients. I can I can make changes easy. Underneath that, I would actually put therapeutic diets. Um, therapeutic diets have more quality control. They're more defined formulas. Um, although they're defined for specific disease situations, some of them are okay to feed for growth or pregnancy or adult maintenance. Um, for example, we use, I use a lot of, we use a lot of joint diets in puppies because they're high in omega-3s. They just give you more um, above and beyond what the average profile is. Underneath that, then I would put life stage specific. Um, so growth for growth, adult for adult. And then underneath that, I would put all life stage at, yep. the, at the very bottom. Yep. Good, good. And that's, that's good advice as well. Anything, um, other than I like the fact you're adding fish for your kitties, you're doing a raw egg, any other foods that you would suggest cat owners consider just for healthy kitties for improving microbiome health, nutritional diversity, nutritional well, diversity. I yeah, and I didn't. I didn't mention that we actually give them a probiotic too, so they get they get probiotics uh, mixed in with their food every day as well, um, uh, which I'm also a big believer in. So they get their fish oils and their probiotics. Who knew that cats would eat kale? But our cats like kale. Um, and um, I think again, if you rotate things around, that's what you want to do. So yeah. is there any one? I mean, we want to talk about the superfoods and things like that, which. Sounds good, and there is a little bit of data with. There's like very little, if any, in dogs and cats. But if you rotate through, again, what you're doing is you're not getting them locked into the one thing. You're providing a mix of things over the course of time. And it's not rotating every six months. 
where now they're locked into six months. We, we rotate them daily. Every other day they get something different. Um, so uh, I think that's the trick in hoping to, mo hoping to modify their diet to give them optimal nutrition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, all, all great information. One last burning question about kidney health. Mm -hmm. Any tips or tricks? Of course, it's one of those uh, weak links with our domesticated felines. They, for whatever reason, uh, they tend to be predisposed to more kidney disease than other species. Any thoughts on why that is? Or most importantly, what we could do to be proactive and potentially reducing that risk? Yeah, that's a good question also. And if I had the answer to that, I, I would be retired. <laughs> yes. Um, so I, it's kind of interesting that, um, you know, one of the things we do is restrict dietary protein in an animal that eats a lot of protein. So why would an animal who's used to eating a lot of protein develop a disease where you want to restrict the protein? Um, and maybe that's just a way of calling the herd if they were out in the wild that they get to be a certain age. This is a way to get up, get rid of them and let the younger survive. Um, I, you know, is there something we do to prevent it? Unfortunately, at least at this point in time, we really don't know. Um, there have been some theories about the role of viruses that are used with vaccines. That hasn't really been expanded on to, to get a feel for how much that plays a role or not. Um, there is there something in the diet that causes it? Nobody has found a one or more things. Um, certainly eating high protein doesn't cause it. And these are, these are carnivorous. I mean, they're high protein eaters anyway, but even in humans, eating a high protein diet does not cause kidney disease. Once they develop kidney disease, then what we're trying to do, and, and probably over the course of a 16 year old cat's life, it's not any one thing. And it's probably multiple, multiple things. And, and what happens is you lose some function and then the rest compensate and then you lose some more and the compensates until you finally hit the threshold where there's no more compensation available. And that's when the numbers go up and, you know, their overall health kind of declines. So what we end up doing at that point in time is we try and minimize the excesses and deficiencies that occur with abnormal kidney function. Um, you know, there are some newer biomarkers that have come out we're still kind of figuring out where those play early on. Um, and I, I think there's some role for them, but I still have situations where I look at those numbers and go, well, that didn't make sense. Yeah. Um, um, so I, I, I don't know that we have found that perfect test yeah. yet to predict. Any thoughts, Dr. Pearson, whose interview will be played later this week during Cat Week, her suggestion is if you've had the heartbreak of dealing with one cat going through kidney disease, you are forever damaged. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we also have a lot of clients that come in and say, I can't bear to go through this again. I want to check early on. She uh, teaches her clients how to check urine-specific gravity at home. Mm -hmm. And what are your thoughts on how often should cat parents check like how early should you start at two years of age with a baseline ua or what what do you suggest if you want to stay on top of checking kidney function in your cat what do you recommend well you're going to get different answers from different people um yeah. i i actually uh with our pets not only the dogs we've had in the past but but the cats we have now we actually you know we do their their kitten vaccines they're coming up of a year of age to get their boosters and after that we'll do vaccine titers so i would rather spend my money on our cats doing annual exams and looking at changes, trends in blood work over time rather than vaccinating. Uh, now you're kind of locked into rabies um, because of the legality and the zo zoonotic potential of that. But the other vaccines, if you measure titers, a lot of them maintain a high 
antibody teratum, they don't necessarily require revaccination. So again, instead of spending the money that way, I can spend my money or spend the client's money in a different way. I think getting a baseline, as it were, at, a, at adulthood for a cat one to two years of age, to one to three years of age, somewhere in there is a good idea. Um, you know, checking your specific gravity at home, you know, there's actually a study that looked at adult and uh, cats and kittens, and the majority of adult cats and kittens have urine-specific gravities above 1.035, regardless of time of day. Um, there's a small percentage of healthy cats that are less than that, but the majority are, are way above that. You could argue that that's a good sign because they're concentrating, but you could also argue if it's really high, maybe they're actually running dehydrated, and that might be the thing that triggers everything. So I know our cats, uh, their specific gravities are less than 1035 because of how much water they get in their food, even though they don't drink. And so I think the specific gravity is a good idea, but I think it really is dependent upon what you're feeding and what your goal is. Yep. Um, if you know they're on low moisture diets and a 1060 specific gravity is normal, but maybe that's not a good thing for a cat in the long run. And if they're on high moisture foods, a 1030 specific gravity or a 1025 might be abnormal because most cats concentrate yeah. better than that, but that might be a good thing because yeah. it's keeping them diluted and flushed out. Um, I think instead, looking at blood work and looking over time is the important thing. So especially with people who have had, uh, pet owners who've had animals with kidney disease, I would tell them, you know, start young and look at, especially where their creatinine is. Um, and again, there are other biomarkers, but actually if you trend creatinine over time, it gives you some good, good information. As long as when you draw the samples, they're hydrated. And if their creatinine, you know, is 0 0.9, 0 0.9, 0 0.9, 0 0.9, year after year after year. And then they get to be 12, it goes to 1.1, and then it's 1.3, and that's still normal, but the trend is going up, then that might be the time to intervene. Whether it helps or not, we don't know yet, right. but um, it probably can't hurt. Exactly. And certainly to be proactive and know that those changes are occurring are a whole lot better emotionally for our owners than just being told, oh, by the way, your cat's in kidney failure. That's devastating. Yeah. And I think we're, we're we are trained for the most part, although I think this is changing, but in my 30 years of doing this, I think we, we were trained to be reactive. We're trained to be reactive with diseases and proactive with infectious diseases. Yes. So, you know, we're trained uh, uh, anti-parasite drugs and fleas and vaccines and all of that, but we're not trained to how do you intervene to prevent something from happening in a high risk situation. Yeah. And I think we're moving towards more of that prevention for other things. Again, we yes. use therapeutic diets as a preventative in healthy animals if they have a high risk for something. If you have a cat who's prone to stone disease, then feeding a diet that might help lower that risk. If it's a maintenance food and it's a good food, you know, double win. Um, exactly. So that's yeah. what we started looking and doing more and more in the last, I don't know, probably five to 10 years. And that's heartwarming. I do think that you're in the in the minority. I'm so thankful that you are who you are and you are not only uh, personally, I know you live a very, very productive lifestyle with the animals in your home, but you are role modeling for the rest of our veterinary profession how to begin shifting from a reactive model to a proactive model. And mm -hmm. I really am thankful that you are, that's a part of who you are because that's going to translate down to you're teaching the next generation of veterinarians who have a different perspective than we did coming out. Yeah, of absolutely. Well, it's, it's not just acquiring knowledge, it's acquiring wisdom. And I hope there's some wisdom in, in that approach. Yeah. Well, I tell you, it's coming and I'm so thankful you're a part of it. I appreciate you sharing your time and your wisdom with us today. <laughs> Thank you for um, all that you're doing. Thanks, Dr. Varges. Yeah, thank you.